Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. In today's episode, we'll be looking at the little emperors, the generation of only children, and whether science backs up common stereotypes about China's one-child policy. Launched in 1979, the policy was an unparalleled targeting of women's bodies by a state. In 1983 alone, alongside 21 million births, there were 14 million abortions, 17 million IUD insertions, and 20 million sterilizations. By 2010. Research by Chinese scholars estimated there were 30 million surplus boys in China. Last year, the policy was abandoned for a two-child policy. In rural China, forced sterilization and even the demolition of your house were common punishments meted out to family planning violators. In urban China, you'd simply lose your job. So, what impact will two generations of little emperors have? In this episode, we'll be taking a double-pronged approach. Looking at the latest artistic and academic treatments of the issue. Later, we'll look at research by Lisa Cameron, published in Science, which lays out the impact of the policy on people's behaviour. It has some solid answers to the question: Did the policy really create selfish little emperors, or is this just lazy stereotyping? But first, art. So the sound that you can hear is from a play that is being put on at the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne, and this audio really conjures up the mood of this production. It's called Little Emperors. It's an angsty, claustrophobic story of a single family whose lives have been distorted by the one-child policy. It's all done with multiple cameras, projections of the actors, and a stage knee-deep in water. It's a bilingual play in English and Mandarin. It's written by an Australian playwright, Lachlan Philpot, and directed by the Chinese director Wang Chong. He's 35 years old, and he was at school with 50 children in his class, all of whom were only children. When I spoke to him, I started by asking him which characteristics of the one-child generation were showcased in the play. I think we are too much. Individuals were too different from the、uh, previous generations. We don't have a sense of、uh, being part of a community, a larger group, a bigger cause. So individuals who、uh, indulge themselves in video games and social network, social media, is it possible for us to bring? Change in China. If not, would China stay as what it is for another hundreds of years? <laughs> That's a interesting question. I really want to、uh, know. I mean, you've described the play as a discussion of the recent political past. I mean, how do you think that it sort of moves along the conversation? I always think theater should be a、uh, forum for the public to discuss、uh, important issues, in,、uh, especially political issues. In our case, 
the one-child policy was officially ended one year ago. Uh, in this play, we really want to focus on one uh, family and look at how, uh, what kind of impact that the policy has on the people, on the generation. And that impact maybe is uh, irreversible. And this is uh, a big proportion of the Chinese population now. And the one-child generation would become the major force in China or the world. So what are these people? How are they doing? This is the major question that we ask in the play. How do these themes come through? How are they shown? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lachlan has long interest uh, in China, and I brought him to Beijing in lo- last March to do field research. Then uh, we uh, uh, met this um, uh, Chinese high school girl. She has a very interesting family story. She has a younger brother, and due to the one-child policy, the government official family has to hide the younger brother. So in the public, the father wouldn't hold hands with the son, and the father wouldn't uh, walk together with the son. They have to keep a distance together in the public. So basically, that's a major inspiration. And this play uh, is about this Kevin got discovered uh, at the age of six. Before that, he was hidden within the family, never went out. Then at the age of six, he was sent to a boarding school in Hong Kong. So he's separate from his family all the time. His parents, his uh, elder sister. Then he came to uh, Melbourne for college eventually. Then, of course, the family are still in Beijing. So it's about uh, these people, how they deal with uh, the separation for years, how they can possibly come up together and uh, know each other really and discover themselves as a family. So do you think this story is telling a wider story, a story of a generation of little emperors? Uh, Definitely. Although the uh, two children in the play are not uh, the only children in the family, uh, but it's more interesting than looking at one uh, child in one family. Uh, it's a spin out of that normal situation. Uh, and of course, this uh, uh, Kevin, the protagonist, uh, is uh, a, uh, a homosexual. He cannot uh, reproduce for the family to bear the family name on. So there's more uh, conflict in there. Right, and I mean, this is one of the issues that your generation faces, isn't it? The fact that you have all these expectations upon you, you know, uh, generally as an only child, the expectation of carrying on the family name, or, you know, two parents, four grandparents, putting all their hopes on a single child. Do you think that has a psychological impact on your generation? Exactly. You face it every day. My parents know that I'm 35 years old, I'm not married, and they really want to have uh, grandkids, so they really want to push me. And what happens to me is also 
uh, inspiration to uh, Lachlan. My dad secretly put my information onto a dating website uh, <laughs> with my uh, photo. Uh, then later when I knew I got a, a little angry, I uh, forced him to uh, put it down immediately. This is also written into the play. Uh, so directing the play in general is a very embarrassing experience because it's so true to the Chinese contemporary life. Uh, and it's, um, uh, it's also embarrassing to see myself in all the characters in the play. The mother always blinds herself and the daughter, uh, she can't cope with a relationship from before. So I, I really can see myself, all the situations. Some of the characters, their experience mirrors your own. Exactly. What we incorporate in the play is this um, uh, story of uh, the elder sister in the family. Uh, she is um, the so-called leftover lady, Sheng Nu. Then uh, her granddad, uh, always goes to this uh, Tiantan Park marriage market in Beijing, uh, where there are thousands of uh, parents and grandparents post their uh, children's information uh, on a piece of A4 paper in order to exchange information and arrange dates for them. It's never the kids who go there uh, by themselves. So we incorporate those scenes into our set. In the theater, you're going to see more than a hundred A4 pieces of paper bearing information uh, from the marriage market in Beijing. So you see the contemporary uh, Chinese life and how isolated these uh, children can be and how worried their parents are to arrange dates for them. There is scientific research which actually shows that the one-child generation, they tend to be less trusting, less trustworthy, more risk-averse, less competitive, more pessimistic, and less conscientious. I mean, do these kind of characteristics play out in your... Uh, are they... Can you see them through the characters in your play? Yeah, I can see that. This protagonist, Kevin, he... Uh, quit college in Melbourne uh, in order to be a professional theater director, but he can't cope with people. He always is too rude to uh, his actors. So after the actors all quit, he can only uh, go onto the stage by himself giving a monologue. So in a way, uh, we do have uh, social issues, social obstacles. Yeah, it's a part of the characteristic, but, but I don't want to uh, overgeneralize. Everybody is different. Was that based on your, uh, your own experience? Have you had lots of actors quit on you? Not really, but I did have a, a major problem in the team when I was staging the first ever show I did in Beijing. So the actors threatened to quit at that time. So, <laughs> so uh, it's out of the experience. It's uh, really truthful. 
Another problem that the one-child generation is facing is the whole issue of what it's like when you have two only children who get married, people who are used to having everything their own way. And I think we've seen in the last few years that the divorce rate has doubled in mm. a decade. And a lot of social commentators within China are blaming the one-child generation for the rise in divorce rate. Do you think that is potentially really an issue? You can blame uh, that, but I'd imagine it's a natural trend. People in China start to realize uh, what kind of life they want to have. But I'd say it's also possible that the only children would be the ones who don't want to take care of others. They want to uh, be taken care of. If two only children form a family, if both of them don't want to take care of the other, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I just remember when I was in China, I did a story where I actually interviewed a divorce lawyer, and she said that she'd had several cases where there were two only children who were getting divorced, and neither of them wanted to keep the child. <laughs> and that to me was really shocking that, that that could occur. But she said to me that in her experience in these cases, people tended to see the child as an obstacle, something that would get in their way at enjoying life and at moving on. In terms of selfishness in relation to uh, having children, I admit that uh, I'm the uh, selfish one. I worry that uh, having children would uh, make my career more difficult. It would take much time and energy and economic resources away from me, from the joyful life that I should have. I understand that you're quite well known for having very innovative staging, very unusual staging, and that there's this sort of pool of water, mm -hmm. a tank of water that's uh, on the stage in this production, and it's meant to be very symbolic. Can you talk a little bit about that and what, it, what is symbolic of? The whole set on the stage is a pool uh, of water. Then the actors would have to... Uh, stand on chairs in order to uh, walk in the water and the actors also establish relationships with each other through water. Sometimes the water is romantic, uh, erotic, sometimes the water becomes an obstacle between people. The water keeps people away from each other. Uh, in the cases where people stand on chairs in the water, the chairs become islands to separate people. Then people are isolated. Uh, it's very interesting. This image of people as islands isolated from each other is really strong. I mean, do you think that that kind of social isolation will become a problem? The isolation is definitely a problem because we see more and more internet forums more and more internet-based communications, but there's a very weak sense of community in China. You don't see the actual people gathering. You don't see uh, a community of people working together. There might be online communities, but not really physically in the society. Uh, so in that manner, I think it's problematic. 
Do you think that you'll take this show to China? It could be difficult due to potential censorship, but I would like to take this to China in order to start a discussion in theater、uh, and also to share this creation that、uh, we've been、uh, creating for over a year. But how much? Do you think would have to be changed in order that this would get past Chinese censors? Maybe we only need to change one percent of the text, or maybe no matter how we change it, public discussion of、uh, such a political issue couldn't be allowed. You never know until you know the result. So the fact that. One of the main characters is the child of an official. I mean, something like that. You would would you have to change that? Do you think? I don't know. You see news like that everywhere, but putting it onto the stage is another story. So, how do you judge what is allowed and what is not allowed? We cannot judge. We can only guess. That's、uh, the artist's challenge. You know, there's some sort of bottom line. But you never know where it is exactly. I mean, you've worked quite a bit overseas, haven't、mm-hmm. you? Do you find it liberating?、Uh, it's very liberating for me as an individual artist, but it's also limiting because whatever important things I want to discuss, I can only discuss them outside of China. Leaving the Chinese audience, these issues are not as poignant. As what they should be within China, so it's a pity. Over the years, I really want to create things that are very relevant to the Chinese audience, the Chinese society, the place where I grew up. But it's very hard to be relevant when I create pieces within China. That was Wang Chong, the Chinese theatre director, talking about the play Little Empress, which is playing at the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne. We're joined in the studio by Lisa Cameron, an economist from Monash University, who's conducted two research projects looking at the impact of the one-child policy. One research stream examines whether there were measurable differences in the behaviour of people born under the one-child policy, and the other measures the impact of the policy on crime. Lisa, you were lucky enough to join Louisa at the premiere of Little Emperors, and one overwhelming theme of the play is pressure on the one-child generation to get married. Thinking about your most recent research, you find that the pressure on China's surplus men to find a wife is having some remarkable effects. Could you explain what you found? We、um, conducted a study with、uh, prisoners in a prison in China. And、um, we looked at the relationship between、um, the probability of being in jail and the sex ratio in the counties of birth of the people in our sample. So we had、um, data from. Prisoners in the prison. It turns out that this was in a southern Chinese city where there's a lot of、um, rural urban migrants, and it turned out that 85% of the、um, sample of prisoners、uh, were rural urban migrants. And so then we we conducted a similar survey and similar experiments with a group of. Randomly selected migrants in the same area, and so then we looked. We're able to look at the probability of being in jail, and because these people have all migrated to these cities, they've come from a whole range of different areas in China, and so we can use this census.
census data to work out what the sex ratio is. That's the ratio of men to women in the population, what the sex ratio is in um, in the areas that these people came from. Because it turns out that um, a lot of people who migrate to the cities, because they don't have all the rights of people who were born in the cities, they often return to the countryside to find a... Um, a bride um, for the men. And so what we do is we look at the sex ratio amongst people who in the, uh, who are in the, at that marriageable age. Um, and what we find is that if you come from an area that has a high sex ratio, so on average you have about 106, 107 men or boys being born relative to 100 girls. That's natural, naturally what occurs. So in some parts of China you have as many as 150 boys being born to every 100 girls. So you've got this massive skewing of the sex ratio with a lot more boys than girls. So in effect for, for every three boys, one of them is going to miss out on a bride. That's right, yes. So there's this immense pressure on the men, coming from the parents often, and presumably a lot of the men would like to get married, um, for a lot of pressure on them to find a bride. And so what we find is that in areas where there are a lot more boys to girls, people coming from those areas, the men are much more likely to be incarcerated, so in prison, than men who are otherwise similar and who come from areas where there's not such a skewed sex ratio. And so our we had a couple of hypotheses. Um, one is that it's marriage market pressures, um, and that's what we find to be the predominant force. So there's just this for, this pressure on these men to find a bride, and in order to become to be a more attractive um, partner, um, they look to accrue wealth. And um, and so what we'd find is that 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 accruing wealth for some people might be mean being involved in um, crime. And um, because we look at different types of crime, so we look at um, economic type crimes, so crimes that are going to be financially lucrative, and we look at violent crime. And we find that all of the impact is coming through economic crime. So it seems that these men, um, as a result of the pressure to find a wife, um, resort to economic crime. One of the interesting things from my research, thinking about your research, Lisa, is that you are you have the sex ratio as the explanatory variable and research elsewhere shows that it's this is not a function of poverty in a county what it is a function of is how zealous the county party secretary and the county historically has been in enforcing the one child policy and i worked in just such a county and the outcomes of it were interesting in that you had a skewed sex ratio, obviously, but you also had a reputation in the county that the women were extremely uh, or very much in demand on the marriage market. And so in a sense, they didn't have to try too hard. So this was the perspective, if you like, from the home county. Yeah, well, actually, the point you raise is a very important one from a research perspective, because of course, a high sex ratio could reflect cultural things about that particular county, say. But, um, yeah, as you say, previous research has shown that it's really a lot of the sex ratio is to a large degree determined by the strength of the relationship between the local officials and the central government. And that's largely a random, random effect, which kind of varies across time. So, um, so that makes us feel more confident that what we're finding is actually the effect of the sex ratio on crime rather than something else that's driving the sex ratio that's also driving crime and, you know, maybe like a cultural, very strong preference for boys. 
Mm. I mean, in, in the county I was working in, they, they literally, um, I asked one woman who was of a marriageable age who hadn't yet been allowed to have a child, how often family planning officers would check on her. And she told me they checked on her every week. So these were incredible pressures oh, on women. extraordinary, yeah. So, I mean, in your research, you were working with Chinese prisoners. How on earth did you manage to get access to Chinese prisoners? So I should say that this is joint research with Xinmeng at ANU and Dundun Zhang at Peking University. And Dundun had conducted some previous research on a different project, which involved this particular prison. And so she's the one who forged the relationships and got us access to the um, the prison. Um, so it was quite an extraordinary opportunity because not only were we able to go into the prison and run a survey, um, and also we conducted... Uh, experimental games, which I'll talk about in a second. The prison also um, gave us access to all their administrative records and we were able to link that with the data we collected ourselves from the surveys and the experiments. So not only do we have information on the demographic background of the prisoners, we also have, and we have these behavioural measures from our experiments, but we also have their entire, um, the entire criminal history of the prisoners, um, which we use to some extent in this paper. We'll probably use more in other papers, but that's how we know what types of crime they were um, involved in. So what we found was that those men who came from areas where there was a high sex ratio in these experimental games and questions, they were more impatient and they were more risk-loving. So you see a real behavioural effect, which is consistent to some extent with what you see in the um, zoological literature where people have conducted experiments with birds and they experimentally change the sex ratio in these populations, which, of course, we can't do in human populations. And they find that when you have more men, you do see behavioural change. You might see more aggression or um, something along those lines. So what we're finding is in human populations where you have more men to women, then we're seeing more risk-taking and greater impatience. And both risk-taking and impatience are positively associated with the probability of committing a crime and being in prison. And one, one thing that popped out of your research was that this effect disappeared completely once uh, men were married. So once you're married, it doesn't matter what county you're from. That's right, yes. So when we look at the effect of the sex ratio, we find this positive association with um, the probability of being in prison. Um, but then when we interact that with whether the individual is married or not, we find that only holds for unmarried men. So it seems once you're married, you're not subject to the same pressures and so you're less likely to um, engage in these criminal acts. And in, in our interview, Wang Chong really made the point that young Chinese feel no sense of greater community. Is that something that's borne out by your research into the behavioural impacts of the one-child policy? Yeah, broadly speaking, it is. Um, I found it interesting, the images in the play of the um, of the actors on the chairs in the water. So they were like, it was as though they were on their own islands. What we find in the uh, research of mine that was published in Science and which was conducted with co-authors at Melbourne University and at ANU, we again conducted experiments 
with um, people. This time it was with people, general population in Beijing. We constructed a sample of people born just before the one-child policy and just after the one-child policy. So we wanted people who would otherwise be very similar to each other, but they're just born, you know, maybe two years apart. And so as a result, some of them are subject to the policy and, and the vast majority of them are only children. And the others, because they weren't subject to the one-child policy, um, a, a lot of them still have siblings. Um, in terms of uh, their personality traits, which we gather information on that from survey questions, standard survey questions that are used by psychologists. And then we also ran a series of four games. So we compare the people born before the one-child policy with the people born afterwards in terms of altruism, trust. We also run a risk game and we also have a measure of competitiveness. So anyhow, to get back to the islands in the water, um, these measures of altruism and trust and trustworthiness, uh, we refer to them as measures of social preference. So they are in some, you know, in looking at particular dimensions of how people relate to each other. And we do find really large differences between those born before and after the one-child policy. And we use various statistical techniques to actually identify the effect of being an only child as a result of the one-child policy. So um, say in the dictator game, we find that those people who are only children as a result of the one-child policy give on average 7% less of the 200 yuan to their counterpart. Um, and you see bigger effects on trust and trustworthiness. So you have people who are only children as, as a result of the one-child policy on average pass 16% less of the amount that they're given to the other person that they're playing the game with. And those people who are given some money return on average 11% less um, if they are only children as a result of the one-child policy. So we're finding that the one-child policy generation are less altruistic, less trusting and less trustworthy. So that old stereotype of being more selfish, more driven by self-interest, that's true. Yes, yes. Science backs it up. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm a little cautious because these games do just, they identify a particular type of behaviour. Um, so do we want to call it selfishness? Uh, uh, maybe. <laughs> but um, yes, we are seeing... Uh, we, we certainly saw results consistent with the stereotypes. And similarly, with the risk game, we find that those people who are only children, as a result of the policy, um, were less willing to take risks um, and um, they were also less willing to compete, so they're less competitive. And when we look at the personality traits, we found that they were um, more pessimistic less conscientious, and there's some evidence that they're slightly more neurotic. Um, so, yes, there's a, it kind of does draw a pretty negative picture. One thing that really strikes me about this, thinking about the plays, is that you are um, talking about Wong Chong's generation. So these are the people born in the early 80s, just as the policy was coming into effect. And in some ways, they were less alone than the one, the only children that came afterwards in the 90s and the 2000s. So they still had aunties, they still had uncles, and they still had plenty of cousins running around. So extrapolating forward, how do you think uh, these behaviours would manifest in people born after uh, the 1980s? 
We, we do talk about that briefly in the paper because in our study, you're right, these people still had aunts and uncles and, in fact, we looked at cousins and they still had on average seven cousins. Um, so you'd expect, if anything, the later cohorts would be even more adversely affected by the policy because then they end up you know, not having aunts, well, the second generation ends up not having aunts and uncles and um, not having cousins. And um, we asked the participants in the survey about their interactions with, well, we asked them about whether they'd been in childcare at a young age and how often they saw their cousins to get an extent of how often they interacted with other children. And we do find that the greater the interaction with cousins, um, the um, the more muted these impacts are. So interaction with other children can, you know, offsets some of this impact. Putting on your economist's hat, what uh, impact are these behavioural traits likely to have on the Chinese economy uh, look going forward? Uh, well, I think that's very hard to say. One of the um, possible consequences, I mean, when you look at the uh, – results for risk-taking, so being less willing to take risks, less willing to engage in competition, um, and maybe even being less conscientious, you do think that that could have an impact in terms of the entrepreneurial ability of that generation. You know, if you're not willing to take risks, you don't want to compete, then you're more likely to go for a safe job, which is what we actually find because we know what jobs they were in. Um, and so we classify them in terms of more risk, risky jobs and more um, secure jobs. And we do find that the one-child generation have a preference for those secure jobs over the more risk-taking jobs. So finally, I mean, now the one-child policy has been lifted, even, um, there is still quite a lot of anecdotal evidence that Chinese families don't want to have more than one child anymore. Mm. And Wang Chong himself said he felt that the impacts of the one-child policy are irreversible. Mm. Uh, given the research that you've done, do you think that he may have a point? I do think he has a point. Um, and that's really not coming from my research, but from research from Chinese demographers who are of the view that only children uh, are unlikely to have a large number of children. So you might see these behavioural effects perpetuated into the future. Thanks to our guests, Lisa Cameron and Wang Chong, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and you'll find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Lisa's research and Wang Chong's play, Little Emperors. This episode was recorded in Hallwood Studio at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour. Our theme is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Donter. Bye for now.